Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to Solutions Watch. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And if you are a Corbett Report listener, you will know by now that that World War III has already begun, that it is a war against you, and that fundamentally it is an information war that is being waged over the most important battle space in the world, the space between your ears. And if you do understand that, then perhaps you can understand my recent work on this subject, like episode 414 of the Corbett Report podcast on the future of censorship, where I pointed out that censorship, we're going into an age where censorship does not look like what it used to look like, and it's not simply book burning. It's much, much scarier than that, including not only tailoring uh, information for various filter bubbles and steering you away from certain sorts of information to the point where you can't even think to know to ask certain questions or to try to look at certain pieces of information. But as I also pointed out in that episode, I referenced my earlier work on We Need to Talk About Search, where I pointed out some of the very, very troubling ways that search engines and uh, the new devices that will be uh, used to access information will more and more stop us from being able to search for the information we want or even think about the information we want. And in that regard, also, I will send people back if they're more literarily inclined to Film Literature and the New World Order, episode 27 on the Library of Babel by Jorge Luis Borges, an incredible short story that really encapsulates the core issue here that access to information, the access to information, knowing what it is we are looking for and how to look for it, is in some ways the key to the underlying key to understanding anything about our world. So in that context, I am, as I say, very proud to say that Corbett Report listeners will definitely be well situated to understand the gravity of what we are living through right now and the importance of search, search engines as the gateway to understanding anything at all about our world. So in that regard, you may have seen the recent report, for example, from activistpost.com uh, just the other day, Duck, Duck Go bows to authoritarians, begins censoring search engine results to fight disinformation, talking about DuckDuckGo.com, because of course, everyone except for the normiest of normies knows by now that Google is Big Brother, is part of the evil empire, is trying to control your mind and censor your searches and all sorts of other things. So we know Google is the enemy, but where do you go? What do you do? So I've tried StartPage.com until they basically became Google Lite. I tried DuckDuckGo for many years, but here Matt Agarist is telling us, arguably the world's most popular private search engine, DuckDuckGo, has long been a haven for those who do not want to participate in Google's censorship, manipulation, and tracking. In 2008, Gabriel Weinberg started this mission with an emphasis on protecting searchers' privacy and avoiding the filter bubble of personalized search results that comes with all things Google. Since its inception, the pro-privacy and anti-tracking business model has propelled the company from a couple hundred thousand searches a month to over 100 million searches every day. Their growth has been nearly exponential, but that may all be changing now. This week, Weinberg took everything his organization had been working on for years and flushed it down the toilet with a single tweet. Like so many others, I am sickened by Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the gigantic humanitarian crisis it continues to create. Stand with Ukraine. At DuckDuckGo, we've been rolling out search updates that down-rank sites associated with Russian disinformation. 
Okay, I think everyone immediately, in my audience, immediately understands what that means, why this is a very bad thing, and why it means that DuckDuckGo is now, essentially, signing itself up to be part of that same evil empire that Google is on. And you can go on reading that article. Of course, I'll put the link in the show notes so that you can continue reading Matt Agrist's explanation of it and its importance. But as he points out, who gets to decide what exactly constitutes disinformation? Is it going to be the Atlantic Council members populating the NewsGuard uh, organization or something along those lines? The fact checkers at Reuters? Yeah, of course, this is a very, very bad thing. But as I say, if you are tuned into the Corbett Report, you know the problem by now. You know it in great degree of detail. The question, as always, is what's the solution? And that's why you're tuned into Solutions Watch. So there are a number of alternatives out there that uh, present themselves. Uh, for example, I know that SeerX is one that is often comes up in the comment section as an open source, uh, free and open source decentralized meta search engine. Uh, there is uh, Brave, uh, which now has its own search, uh, which touts itself as the first independent privacy search alternative to big tech. And uh, people can look at search.brave.com for more details about that. Another one that actually came up in the comments recently was pre-search, which I'm sure some people have heard about um, by now. As I say, it came up in the Corporate Report comments section recently as the new kid on the block <laughs> was the way it was described in the search in the comments. But uh, I, I take this from pre-search's Odyssey page, uh, the uh, comment by Cowbot on the most recent uh, weekly news update from PreSearch, uh, who wrote, I have used DuckDuckGo for years because they had unbiased search results and didn't track me. I've been watching this increasing wokeness for some time with a lot of worry. Finally, this week, they crossed the line. Now they're not ranking search results based on relevance alone. Now they have thrown in an ideological weight on all searches. Screw them. I'll give PreSearch a try. I like any service that pays me for my time, Thanks for putting the service out there. All right, so for people who haven't heard about PreSearch yet, I think the first place to go might be PreSearch.io, where you can find about PreSearch, and uh, you can read in that about statement from uh, PreSearch.io that PreSearch is a community-powered, decentralized search engine that provides better results while protecting your privacy and rewarding you when you search. We believe that the best way to compete with the massive centralized and monopolistic corporation that currently dominates search is to build a framework that enables people from all over the world to collaborate to build an open and decentralized search engine. And it goes through the key differentiators on community project, decentralized platform, better search results, privacy, rewards, and a new kind of advertising model. You can read the mission and vision statements. You can read the vision paper. You can read about the team members. There's a lot of information there. Or... If you're like, shut up, get to the point, I guess you could just go straight to presearch.org and try it out for yourself and see what kind of search results you can get from the presearch search engine. Having said all of that, don't listen to me blabbing on about it. Let's talk to someone who actually knows about it. Today, we're going to be talking to Colin Pape of presearch. Colin, thank you very much for being on the program today. Hey, James. Thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it. I appreciate you uh, being here and sitting through that long ramble pre-intro, <laughs> but we have to set the table for the conversation. So <laughs> I'm glad to have you here. But before we get into the technicals of pre-search and what it is and what you do, why don't we talk a little bit about yourself? Who are you? Where do you come from? Why are you interested in this in the first place? Sure. Yeah. So uh, my name's Colin Pape. I, I think based on your Skype username, I'm around your age, uh, early 40s. I've been in uh, the internet space uh, for over 20 years and kind of have seen the 
shift to the walled gardens that now dominate the internet and really, you know, use the internet before the days of Google and have have kind of started in the internet since before the days of using your your real identity, which really uh, kind of became a big thing after Facebook uh, started enforcing that policy. And uh, I remember the old days when uh, you used to use a pseudonym and uh, a lot of uh, the conversation and the time spent was in forums and in chat rooms. And it, it was really kind of uh, the, the free and open days of the Internet. And uh, so uh, I started off developing websites for small businesses, uh, saw a big need to enable uh, small local businesses to compete against the big corporates that were kind of, uh, you know, moving in in a lot of uh, tier two, tier three uh, communities. So uh, I started a, a project called shopmidland.com, which is for my hometown of Midland, Ontario, which is, is where I'm uh, located. It's about 20,000 people north of uh, Toronto uh, on the beautiful Great Lakes. And, uh, you know, a Walmart and a Home Depot came into Midland back around 2000. Uh, my parents had a local business, uh, a paint store that they had for uh, a couple of decades. And uh, we saw kind of firsthand that, you know, the landscape was changing and that uh, there needed to be some type of awareness around the benefits of local businesses and everything that they had to offer. So started uh, ShopMidland.com uh, way back in April of 2000 and uh, started evolving that over time to become kind of like an Amazon.com for your local community. So each individual community would have its own brand, uh, secured a domain portfolio of like 8,000 domain names, uh, shopnewyork.com, shopboston.com, kind of all the way down to little towns like Midland and built out uh, something similar to a franchise model, enabling people to, uh, you know, kind of claim the rights to their local uh, community and then do the sales and the marketing, and we would provide a platform. And uh, so as part of that, we ended up uh, in Silicon Valley of all places, uh, right kind of the, the, the belly of the beast uh, in uh, 2010. Uh, one of my business partners is from uh, San Jose originally, so uh, we ended up getting a, a lead and we started uh, ShopMountainView.com, which is right in Google's backyard. And uh, we had partnered with the uh, city government, the city of Mountain View, as well as a, a local newspaper, uh, the Mountain View Voice. Uh, and then the Mountain View Chamber of Commerce, which happened to count Google as one of their members. And uh, so we uh, began rolling out the, uh, the offering there in Silicon Valley, also in Palo Alto and Menlo Park. Uh, it was going really well. And uh, one day woke up in the, the middle of July in 2011, and uh, all of the sites were on page eight of Google. And we couldn't really understand why that happened or, or what, you know, was uh, going on. Thought it was probably something on our end. Uh, tried to no avail to uh, resolve it, tried getting in touch with somebody at Google, of course, to no avail, uh, and then ended up discovering like the thousands and thousands of businesses and projects and uh, people that this had happened to, and in some cases, you know, put them right out of uh, business. And uh, so I was fortunate to connect with a lawyer, a man named Gary Reback, who was the one who uh, broke up Microsoft with uh, Windows and Internet Explorer back in 1999. Uh, he's kind of known as, uh, you know, the champion of the free marketplace. 
And uh, he was involved in an FTC investigation uh, into Google's uh, monopolistic uh, practices. And, and kind of at the time, uh, not only did this happen kind of directly to us, but a couple of months earlier, uh, Google released something uh, called the Get Your City Online campaign, which was partnering with Chambers of Commerce to onboard local businesses into a Google control platform. So as this was happening, we were thinking, man, is this happening because Google is trying to, you know, kill us in the cradle, as Gary was saying, uh, or what was going on? And uh, so, so through that effort, uh, we ended up uh, getting contacts at the highest level of, of Google. Uh, a man named Gabriel Stricker was the one that I was dealing with. He was the head of global PR for Google. Uh, kind of the, the, the most interesting, you know, moment that happened in this whole saga was when uh, we we contacted or connected with him. Uh, I kind of had actually uh, almost you know a verbal uh, dispute with him because uh, he was saying, "Hey, there's nothing going on, and this is not our fault." And uh, as I was pushing back on him, I, I got off the phone. And uh, we had a, a live chat program at the time that would show where visitors were coming from and kind of who was on the site live. All of a sudden, we have Google IP addresses from Mountain View. We have them from Washington, D.C., Germany, from all over the world converging onto our sites. And we knew that, oh, wow, we have poked the bear here. Uh, so uh, thanks to Gary, we were fortunately able to uh, get somebody to write about what was, uh, was happening, uh, a man named Matt Swift. Uh, who wrote for the San Jose Mercury News, he was able to push uh, against his publisher who was uh, trying to stop him from uh, publishing anything that kind of ran against the, the Google is great narrative. Uh, but he fortunately did, and we were able to get a bunch of press coverage, ended up uh, getting a uh, resolution where they put us in touch with uh, a man named Matt Cutts, who was the head of uh, search quality at Google. And he basically resolved uh, the issue for us. Uh, but it kind of really, you know, opened our eyes to just how much market power Google had. This was before kind of the days of, you know, cancel culture and, and some of the deplatforming that has gone on. And we just realized that this is not a good thing for the Internet, having one entity that really has no transparency at all to the point where over the past, you know, three, four years, uh, the founders of Google have stopped even participating uh, in their share annual shareholder meetings. So there's kind of like no real transparency, no real ability to uh, communicate or influence that organization from the outside. And yet they dominate, you know, over 90 percent of search. And so came up with a, a bit of a, a model for uh, pre-search. Uh, being more of a, a platform for power users, a way that you could basically configure it so that you could add in different search resources so that if you weren't just doing general web search, maybe you were searching like a CRM system or some other type of content management platform that you could basically add in all these different resources and have like a federated search field where you could search and then click the logo for wherever you wanted to direct your search and then you would execute the, the search on that website. Uh, and so that was around 2013, 2014, and uh, then kind of realized, oh, you know, really tough to crack this nut and uh, not really uh, a great go-to-market strategy. And then in 2017, became acquainted with Ethereum, realized that we could uh, develop a model where we would denominate the advertising of the platform in pre-search tokens, which would drive demand for them. And then we could use those tokens and reward searchers and kind of create a bit of a really thin wedge in that user uh, behavior to get them to shift away from Google, which was kind of the main focus. And uh, so, yeah, that's kind of how we got started. 
That is quite a story, and it shows that not only have you journeyed to the belly of the beast, but you danced with the devil himself, and that, I think, gives you some insight into the incredibly important nature of of this. Oh, obviously, you started research, so you, <laughs> I think you understand the importance of, of search generally, and I think, again, I hope that my audience also is. And you raise a couple of interesting points there that I hadn't really consciously thought of, one of which is that, yes, I, I do remember the pre-Google web and that you didn't use search engines back when I first got on, on the web. It was search portals. Remember when the web was small enough that you you could go to Yahoo or whatever listing site it was, and there were like categories that you would click on, and you could just sort of randomly browse to sites you'd never heard of? Yeah, very, very, very different experience, wasn't it? And uh, a very different world. And also, the analogy of the Walmarts and the Home Depots moving into the small town and essentially eliminating all of the, the local businesses is the exact analogy for big tech and what it has done to the online space. And in the same way that the small towns and cities organize themselves around these big box stores, physically changing the infrastructure of the city, that's what big tech is doing in on the internet. And it is rewiring the internet around its big centralized uh, databases. So th it's incredibly important that people understand this. As I say, easy to understand the problem, very difficult to come up with a solution. And as you say, how do you how do you really incentivize people to get away from uh, the internet is google right i go to the internet i.e google and i search for what it is i'm looking for how do you break people out of that pattern conditioning as i say my audience will probably understand the need for that but joe normie joe sixpack out there does not and unfortunately that accounts for a much much greater percentage of the population so there are a lot of tough nuts to crack, as it were in this case. But let's start in on the search side of this. What is pre-search? How does it work? So you, you mentioned uh, Cirque's uh, in your original opening. It, you can think of it as, as being pretty similar to that uh, in its current incarnation. So it's kind of like a meta search engine. It, it goes out, it hits all different uh, resources, existing search engines, databases, APIs. And then we basically have kind of a, a, a mixing algorithm that is uh, determining, you know, which results to pull from each. And then it's, it's uh, compiling uh, the results. And so, uh, you know, the, one of the biggest challenges with search is what they call the long tail of search. So it's not those, you know, top 100,000 keywords, let's say, that a lot of people are searching for. There's really significant volume for. Uh, it's, you know, when you go to a search engine, if you don't have like results for absolutely everything, and if they're not pretty comparable to Google, then people aren't going to continue using it. Even DuckDuckGo has struggled with that, although they've been powered by the Bing API, which is kind of the second best index out there as far as having the breadth of coverage that's required to provide that, uh, you know, user experience. And so the, the way that we've basically tackled it is ensuring that we've got that uh, completeness, but uh, at the same time, uh, you know, trying to uh, provide a framework where we can then start layering uh, an index on top of it that is community curated, that ultimately will utilize blockchain uh, and be, you know, open and transparent so that everybody can see what ranking factors are influencing things, how exactly is it curating uh, information, and then if there are signals that uh, are being factored in, 
which could be uh, things like, you know, voting or uh, other uh, ways that people could stake tokens uh, to either upvote or downvote uh, or, or otherwise kind of influence results to kind of dig into those next layers and see like who is doing the influencing, to what degree, what other things are they influencing, how much influence do they have? And then that at least enables people to make informed decisions and see that, yeah, and changing, you know, in some way, the, the results that I'm receiving. Right. So it's, uh, presumably like Wikipedia, yeah, anyone can go in and edit it and change it and do whatever, but at least you can see, oh, it was this IP address that was doing it. And through that, a lot of people have unmasked, oh, it was actually the U.S. State Department making this change, right? Because that's actually where my mind immediately goes with that is, oh, of course, the U.S. State Department or whoever is going to come in and stake a bunch of PRE tokens on this search result so that when you try to search for this information, it'll give you the NATO-approved, you know, sites or something along those lines. But if there's the transparency to the level where you can see who is doing that, then I suppose that's one way of counteracting that type of influence uh, peddling. It, it is. And I think the other thing uh, to, to think, uh, you know, in terms of, of bias, right, like it's, it's hard to escape some form of bias. And, you know, you could try to be as neutral as possible, but ultimately, you know, it, neutrality on some of these complex issues. I mean, it's easy with things like, you know, math and physics and, and you know, kind of core sciences. Uh, when you get into social sciences, when you get into anything that involves humans uh, or any of these broad complex issues, be it climate change or vaccines or any of these other things, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's tough. And so uh, what I, th I think is going to be one of the ultimate solutions and kind of where we're, we're pushing towards is that that bias really comes from being kind of a set of defaults and and whatever the defaults are that becomes kind of the bias of that environment and so uh essentially we would want to expose the the biases of an environment and then enable people to choose multiple different environments where you know hey this suits you know my uh, take on things or, hey, I want to try experiencing. It's, it's, it's in the same way, you know, that filter bubbles have, have you know, been a bit of an issue. Uh, if, if filter bubbles can be interesting if you know that there's a bubble and if you have the ability to bounce between bubbles. And so that's kind of the, the ultimate vision. Again, we're, we're not, you know, 100% there yet, obviously. The, the project is uh, a, a few years old, but that's kind of the, the goal of where we're going. And in the meantime, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of trying to harness the best of uh, the web currently. And we have kind of some some almost anti-bias that we can build into that current default, which is like, hey, we know something is being censored. We can basically kind of overcome that. And, and, and so it's almost like the reverse of what uh, Gabriel is talking about doing with DuckDuckGo. Uh, oh, we know everybody is censoring, you know, this website or, or this topic. Uh, we can like put those censored results back into the uh, the results. Right. And right. Well, uh, OK, so uh, this is incredibly important. That resonates very strongly with me because it's a point that I've made multiple times and continue to try to make is that the myth of journalistic objectivity as if there's some sort of neutral position, uh, some cloud on which some journalists can float and see just the facts and just report the facts. No, everything surrounding a news report is comes from a 
space of bias. That's what it is to even begin to limit, this is what I'm going to talk about. This is who I'm going to talk to. This is who I'm not going to talk to. Everything is a decision that is being made from a particular viewpoint. And that's why I think I, I don't want to have anything to do with trying to present myself as the un unbiased, objective journalist floating on the clouds. No, I come from a position with certain beliefs and certain ideas, but I try to make it as open as possible. That's why I have open source information. Here are my links. These are the sources of information I used. Come to your own conclusions. And so I resonate very strongly with that idea. We can, there is no such thing as a neutral point of view. You can only be open with the ways that these are my positions, these are my defaults, if you will, and and uh, change them and, and, and create your own bubble and then, you know, change between bubbles. That's, that I think really is the ideal for um, making people understand even that there is no neutral point of view on these issues. But you do raise the specter. So for example, the anti-bias idea. So if we see that this this uh, this website or these ideas are being systematically censored and scrubbed from the other search engines, we can, we can put them higher. We can uprank them. We can highlight them. But then doesn't that also introduce, I mean, is it possible that you, Colin Pape, could see the light and be struck off your horse on the way to Damascus and realize, you know, I love NATO, <laughs> I love everything they're doing, I, I, I love NewsGuard and what they're doing, and I hate the Corbett Report and sites like this, these horrible Russian disinformation bots, I'm going to downrank them. Can, is there a mechanism in place for someone like yourself to do that and to change the, the results that you get from pre-search? I, I mean, it's it's not kind of uh, quite that cut and dry, but it, it essentially, like, what what I've been trying to do as kind of the founder of the project is build up, because ultimately we're saying this is a community-driven project. So I've been consciously trying to curate the community to be kind of freedom-loving, libertarian-minded people who uh, are not, you know, conspiracy averse who are looking at kind of all different sides of, of stories and spectrums and and essentially truth seeking and so that's kind of like like the core group that that we've been trying to build around the project and then that would be my core bias and so uh you know is it possible that that you know i could be uh you know influenced by the establishment uh i mean <laughs> I'm going to say no, personally, because honestly, man, I would rather freaking walk in front of a bus uh, than, than, you know, personally. Uh, now, if there's something like, you know, there is a physical gun put to somebody's head, uh, you know, it's hard to. But even in that instance, it's like things are going to change, obviously. Right. Like nobody's going to be like standing there with a gun constantly. Uh, so I, I mean, that's kind of my core bias. The thing that has shaped my views over time, you know, I grew up in an entrepreneurial, envi entrepreneurial environment. My parents were, you know, very, uh, I, I would say they, they questioned a lot of the value, uh, that, that was purported by a lot of the systems that are out there, you know, whether they're governments or banks or kind of these, these organizations that, uh, are ultimately, uh, positioning themselves as always being there to help, but oftentimes, whether it's through unintended con consequence or, or you know, malice or whatever, uh, they're they're not. And so, uh, I would ultimately like to see a, diff a totally different reality than we have right now. Uh, and and some of the projects I've been trying to support, uh, like decentralized social media and community-driven social media, like Float Float App is 
kind of my you know go to that I really enjoy. Uh, there's a, a man named Kyle Kemper. He's working on a, in you know something more on a national level, but Canada DAO. Uh, where you know it would be more of like a decentralized governance model uh, and a voluntary model to uh, enable citizens to fund projects of value, uh, but you know not driven by the the you know taxation model. Uh, so like those are my biases, and these are the things that like honestly are so in me uh, that it's probably made my life a lot more difficult, and and you know for the people around me as well. Uh, but I, I really just, you know, believe at the core that there are better ways to, uh, you know, enable society to be empowered and, uh, people to just, you know, make decisions that are, are more aligned with kind of, you know, natural law and, uh, natural kind of people. And, uh, so, so, you know, if there's any bias, I would say that there's there would be that type of bias. And uh, if that were to shift because we had a community that kind of came in and uh, tried to, you know, co-opt it, uh, it's possible. But because the 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 community that we have curated and the, you know, the value of the pre-search tokens that they hold within the ecosystem already, it would be difficult uh, to do like, you know, Google can't just come in and buy up all the pre-search tokens. The government can't come in and just buy up all the pre-search tokens. And, and so, I mean, it's not quite a poison pill, but we've tried to kind of, I have tried to, you know, institute this kind of, uh, you know, culture essentially, uh, from kind of my, you know, uh, perspective, uh, but incorporating so many different perspectives of, of the community, which I think is ultimately one of my perspectives. Honestly, I'm just some guy, man. I'm in Midland, Ontario. Uh, I, you know, didn't go to an Ivy League school. Uh, I've never been involved in any of those, you know, types of organizations. Uh, I've always rooted for the underdog. And uh, I just see value in, in, like, all the humans that are all around. Uh, and, and I you know, ultimately want to find ways to do right by, by them. And, uh, so I think our community is largely oriented that way. And I'm hopeful that it's going to be able to stand the test of time to continue to kind of, you know, move us in that direction and not fall into the same pitfalls. And, and I mean, like if you, I'll, I'll tell you like DuckDuckGo, like, you know, honestly, pretty good tech. They have pretty decent tech. Uh, this statement from Gabriel, I don't really know, and I'm sure he's under pressure from, you know, either engineers or funders. But I can tell you from the funding level, DuckDuckGo is funded by uh, one of the biggest venture capital firms out there, Union Square Ventures. They are also funded by OMERS, which is the Ontario Municipal Employee Retirement System. And they have put millions and millions of dollars into DuckDuckGo and they are the establishment. And so like, that's what's gonna happen. Pre-search, we have no outside investors. It's community funded. Uh, the whole project has been driven by people buying pre-search tokens. Uh, our alignment is all around the pre-token and it's you know different than these, these kind of models where you have these conflicting interests ultimately and where you know, OMERS, which is like one of, it's one of the largest pension funds in the world. It's like $95 billion that these guys have. Like, you know, maybe they're not in there influencing things like to, you know, like pressing buttons, 
but certainly they have the ability through their their board to influence what Gabriel is doing and, uh, you know, whatever bias and agenda he has. He's not super public about things. And so, you know, if he's not wearing his heart on his sleeve and if he's got, you know, these kind of ulterior interests that certainly are not, you know, aligned with the freedom community, uh, then, you know, that's kind of what's going to happen, you know? You know, you raise, again, a couple of very important points. One is drawing attention, I think, back again to the question of transparency. This is why transparency is so key, because whatever biases that you have or don't have or the community has at large, as long as we can see them and understand, oh, this is how the algorithm is functioning. This is what is staked, where, how much, by whom, then at least we can calculate that into, you know, what 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 is ultimately being presented to us. I, I think another important um, aspect of this just escaped my mind as I was saying that sentence. So <laughs> I'll come back to it in a moment. But let's uh, let's get into the uh, some more of the nuts and bolts of how this actually works. Walk us through the process. I go to presearch.org and I type in my search term. What happens? Where is that search term sent? How does it collect information? How is that compiled? How is it sent back to me? Am I being tracked? In what ways am I being tracked, etc.? Yep. So uh, currently, the the way that it it happens, uh, so you can install an extension in your browser, or you can use a a mobile uh, app, uh, and that will basically set your default search engine as pre-search. So that when you use the address bar, whatever you type, it it basically ends up going to uh, the pre-search servers. The pre-search servers at kind of the highest end are currently centralized, and we are basically using big tech against itself. Uh, the ultimate vision is to have a totally decentralized tech stack, but it's it's just not there yet. Like there, there's no practical way to to really do it. We're already serving millions of queries a day. We see it being you know tens of millions of queries a day within the next you know year or two. And uh, things like IPFS and uh, decentralized platforms like Flux or, uh, you know, uh, some of the others that, that we're experimenting with, like they're just not there yet. And we've already got kind of a, a whole bunch of challenges as far as competing against Google because they have everything optimized as far as speed goes, as far as everything goes. And same, same with DuckDuckGo and others. And so we, we've kind of got to be like idealistic uh, but also pragmatic. And so like that that top level, so when you're like resolving presearch.com or .org and when that first, you know, kind of query is hitting our system, it's coming into centralized servers and then they are basically anonymizing uh, any of the, the other, you know, information. So whether it's your browser or your IP address, any of that kind of stuff, and then it is uh, sending it to what we call a node gateway which again is currently running on a centralized server, that will be the next layer to decentralize uh, because of, of kind of the, the nature of how we've been doing it. But then from there, it goes to a network uh, and, and currently centralized until the end of April when, when we are running these nodes right now uh, on our own uh, infrastructure. But we have 60,000 user nodes. So we've got 60,000, uh, you know, not 60,000 people because some people have multiple pre-search nodes, but there's 60,000 instances of these pre-search nodes that are running on, you know, could be virtual private servers and data centers. It could be people's personal computers. It could be, you know, uh, hardware that they're running, you know, in a data center. And uh, it's, it's basically receiving that query with no other information attached to it. The, that information kind of gets 
stuck at like the node gateway level. And then those nodes go and they send that query out to these different uh, services. So it, it can go to top search engines, uh, which, you know, I'm gonna not name them specifically, but you can use your imagination. Uh, top search engines, uh, there's, there's uh, some databases that we're hitting. Uh, as well as APIs, so things like the Coin Market Cap API or some of the other uh, services that you know might provide like on-page results, like weather or uh, news, that type of stuff. And then it's basically getting those results, and uh, that's happening through the nodes, and then it's passing it back up to these node gateways, and then the node gateways send it back to those uh, top uh, servers, and then the page gets built. And so there's there's no tracking that happens because we are basically acting like a proxy essentially as you're you're searching. So I, I mean, a lot of people use proxy services already, which are you know a great tool, and I encourage people to utilize those as well. Even those though have risks because you're basically then funneling all of your information through another third party, right? And so there there's no like perfect solution uh, yet at this point, and and I'm hopeful that eventually there will be like full peer-to-peer -peer internet, but to start, you know, it's just not practical. And and so what, what happens uh, then is, is, you know, all your personal information gets kind of hit uh, and, and blocked by pre-search like a proxy service. It's a way to use like proxied search without having to use a VPN for absolutely everything. And it's very similar to that that seer because that was actually kind of the inspiration for it. It was like, you know, hey, if we have uh, uh, something very similar to what they're doing, and we can incorporate the token model onto it and then have the decentralized nodes. And then ultimately, you know, to me, decentralization is it's it's a process. And so we like honestly, the first version of pre-search, we just kicked you right over to Google. Literally, it was like a search field where you could earn tokens. And then when you did your search, it just spat you over to Google because that was kind of the thinnest wedge that we could uh, introduce into user behavior that would still kind of give value to people and 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 build that early user base. So we started there and then we built another version that was basically like DuckDuckGo that used the Bing API. Uh, from there, we've now progressed to the decentralized uh, search nodes. Next thing will be decentralized gateways. So we're, we're now working on the geographic distribution of those and putting those all over the world uh, on different, you know, uh, uh, hardware that we can have a little bit, you know, uh, ultimately more kind of influence on. And, and also, uh, you know, ultimately uh, there will be significant numbers of pre-search tokens staked by the people who are operating those. And there's a significant uh, penalty essentially for uh, somebody who might choose to interfere with anything, which ultimately is always possible a a anywhere down these stacks, whether it's at, at the domain name level with ICANN or your internet service provider or your VPN provider or your application provider, like all of these different kind of layers all ultimately introduce an element of, hey, is there some way that that information can be intercepted? And even when there's encryption, it still isn't like, you know, the perfect solution. It's, it's basically just giving you kind of a clear path to your end destination, but the end destination could potentially still have some type of, you know, uh, malfeasance or, or, you know, more than that, probably it's going to be something accidental that's not intended uh, a whole or some other way. And, and I mean, 
When you look at the biggest enterprises in the world, they've all been compromised through this solar winds hack that has happened over the past couple of years. And like ultimately, any information that you are putting into the internet, basically assume that it's being exposed and it could be open to, to anybody, right? And, and so it's kind of about like uh, try, trying to have a little bit of resilience and redundancy and spreading your information out to different places so that it's not all 100% centralized. I think that's one of the, like the best things that, that you can do. Uh, but, you know, decentralized node gateways, then eventually, uh, you know, as the technology evolves to support it, having a, a decentralized, you know, web server uh, platform that that can actually utilize decentralized encrypted open source uh, software to you know ultimately like escape as much as we can we will still be dependent at that point on the domain name system uh, there will potentially you know be a risk with your internet service provider or your VPN provider and so you know there's always going to be some risk to us it's about trying to minimize things and trying to uh, make it as easy as possible for people to be as protected as they can and and ultimately to try to uh, harness the overall opportunity to bring economic value into kind of an ecosystem. Like, like I've been reading a lot lately about like, you know, totalitarianism and how do you overcome totalitarianism? Very challenging, obviously. But parallel societies are, are what I've seen being proposed as kind of the way, and you're working on it uh, with Solutions Watch and everything that you are trying to. And so if there's a way where we can kind of like facilitate a parallel uh, economy, a parallel platform for search, which does have a lot of economic value, which then presents a bunch of different opportunities for like-minded businesses and entrepreneurs and, and people who have value uh, to advertise and to get you know their offerings in front of the people who align with their values through this platform, then it's a way to kind of facilitate that shift over time. And ultimately, we don't know how much time we have. I mean, they could shut down the internet uh, at you know any, any day. This whole uh, cyber pandemic and uh, everything that you know World Economic Forum has been promoting. I mean, that's a huge risk. Uh, but you know, hopefully, we'll we'll avoid the worst of that, and uh, that pre-search will have the time to kind of evolve and support some of these missions. And ultimately, like you know, our vision and how we put it out in our initial white paper was that we want this to be something that people can fork. So, you know, we're not kind of there yet where it's forkable, but ultimately we want it to be forkable. So like if, if you know, the main implementation of it is not your flavor and is doing, you know, harm, then fork it and then go do good with it. I appreciate your candor on this because I have a low tolerance for flim flam and uh, there's a lot of it in this space, as I'm sure you know. So I appreciate your honesty on this. Yes, ultimately at a certain level, yeah, I guess we have to trust that when we put, we are giving our IP address and browser information, whatever, to pre-searches centralized servers and you have that information, I'm going to have to trust that you're not Google secretly, haha. <laughs> We're puppeteering Colin Pape over here. And you're right, until there is a genuinely peer-to-peer -peer internet, 
and the entire infrastructure surrounding that, there's there's no way to avoid that at this point. It's going to happen at some level. And the best we can do is make do with what we have and layer by layer by layer by layer try to decentralize as we can. So I think that is the right approach to this. And Presearch is demonstrably moving in the right direction with the moves that you have made so far and hopefully will continue to make in the future. But I think that's why people need to be involved with that. Actually, that brings to mind the thing that I forgot earlier. Another incredibly important point of this that I keep coming back to with Solutions Watch is people are often looking for the system or the website or the the service or whatever that will solve these problems. But it always, always, always comes back to the question of community. And if you do not have a community that is on board with this idea and this vision, then you can have the best system in the world. It will still be corrupted and corruptible. So uh, absolutely, that's an incredibly important base layer of this. On on that note, though, of decentralization and steps toward it, I, I heard from your recent news update that you're working on a Web3 release. Tell us about that. Yeah, so that's... that's uh... The, the way that it currently works, and I mean, this is just a step in the, in the kind of the ultimate vision. Uh, it currently, like many services, uh, and to make it really easy, it uses an email address and a password. Well, that's obviously kind of, you know, uh, personally identifiable, potentially. I mean, we encourage people, hey, use an alias. Don't like, you know, go and use your main email address, like like set up a new one. Uh, but still, uh, ultimately, the vision is that people will be able just to connect their Web3 wallet and their Web3 wallet will be how they will collect their tokens, how they will set their default preferences into the, the environment. And so this kind of next step is more just it's it's around kind of the, the rewards and like getting tokens in and out of the platform. Uh, currently, it's it's set up in a way where uh, we're covering the gas costs and we have the uh, kind of. Uh, you know, we, we have to like hit a thing and you put in an address and then and then the system kind of says yes and sends out your tokens. This next way will enable you to connect your wallet to the system. You pay the gas through your own wallet and you have full control over your tokens that are kind of, you know, in and out of the platform. So whether you're doing keyword staking or node staking and you want to or you're searching and you're earning rewards, it's just a way for users to have more control. So that kind of next step is just around the tokens. And then the ultimate step will be giving you the option, hey, do you want to log in with an email address or with a Web3 wallet? And then that Web3 wallet will uh, serve as the repository for your information. Yes, because I, I did hear you say on the, the latest news update that uh, there's there's always the pressure of, well, just introduce KYC and that'll take care of all the people who are trying to earn rewards in the you know dubious ways. But What's the point of a privacy-protecting search engine that uses KYC? Uh, uh, so I'm very much in accord with those moves towards, okay, let's do it, Web3 Wallet, and we don't need to know anything about you personally identifying whatsoever. That uh, Those are important considerations, and of course that raises the specter of, I think, another incredibly important part of this project, an underlying layer of this project, which is the, uh, the ecosystem, the coin, the token ecosystem, and how this actually functions. Uh, it would be great if everyone would just run nodes just out of the goodness of their heart, but that isn't how humans work, and most people don't devote their lives for free to to working on something. So, of course, there is the question of uh, incentivization, which obviously brings with it the idea of tokens and how do you close the token gap and the ecosystem so that it actually becomes something that's de in demand, that then has value, that can then be used to stake 
uh, claims and all of this. That's, I mean, it's a huge can of worms. And let me say up front for the audience's sake, uh, I know that this, that you have affiliate links and things that people can, hey, use my affiliate link to sign up for pre-search or whatever. I am a journalist. I'm not a marketer. I'm not involved. I don't do any of that affiliate marketing whatsoever. Actually, I'm not even registered with pre-search yet. Maybe when we get to the Web3 wallet. <laughs> maybe maybe then but at any rate i'm not I'm, I'm not in any way affiliated with this i'm not marketing it but introduce people to this idea of the pre-token and how they can use pre-search yeah so so ultimately it's about aligning the interests of all the different stakeholders within the ecosystem and ultimately trying to create a, a closed loop environment that can essentially exist outside of the legacy system. So we have even as it stands, like very few ties into like legacy banking or anything like that. Like essentially, you know, it's it's a credit card that is paying for some of the current centralized services. That's kind of the, the current, you know, still uh, touch point out to that legacy system. But uh, as we go, we're, we're trying to, to enable it so that the entire ecosystem can function off of pre and in doing so then can be totally independent. And so uh, the way that it, it works, uh, it is utilized to incentivize uh, the node operators so they earn pre-search tokens as they contribute their excess uh, computing resources to power the infrastructure needs of the, the platform. Uh, and then uh, we are, you know, especially in the current uh, incarnation and, and in previous ones, I mean, we, we recognize that we're not as, you know, fast and we're not as, you know, polished as Google and uh, that in order for people to switch, uh, yes, we're appealing to, hey, here's the vision and help us get there uh, and, and, you know, participate on many levels uh, if, if you're so inclined. Uh, but, you know, we want to ensure that there is kind of that short term incentive as well. And we found that it's been very effective to reward people with pre-search tokens as they search. And it kind of helps them overcome that gap between, you know, perfectly polished Google and pre-search, which is still evolving. You know, like we don't have autocomplete, for instance, right now. Uh, that's one of the, uh, uh, you know, next things on the, the hit list. No, but no, no, <laughs> I hate autocomplete. I know. <laughs> I know. And, and, and you can turn it off and I don't use autocomplete uh, either. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people like it. And, and that is honestly like one of the biggest challenges just as far as yes, like you're steering people like it's unbelievable how much you are steering people when you start suggesting to them like and if people thought about how that was working in real life, hmm, all of a sudden James comes up and starts whispering, you should look at this. They would be completely creeped out, but, you know, they tolerate it. <laughs> As they're speaking, in the middle of a sentence, I start saying, did you mean right. to say Henry Kissinger <laughs> right. or David Rockefeller in in China That's in 1971? Right. Is that what you were talking? Oh, no, sorry. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we need that, man. That would be hilarious. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so, so, you know, there's the reward aspect of it that way. And then really kind of closing the loop on the demand side of the, the ecosystem uh, is uh, the, the advertising platform. And so like ultimately that is kind of the heart of Google's entire empire. These insanely basic little, you know, text ads. They have made Google in revenue probably over a trillion dollars now, uh, over a hundred billion dollars a year in revenue they, they generate from it. And uh, it, it works for advertisers as well. There's a reason why it continues to 
thrive and people continue to utilize it. It's it's what they call directional marketing. So people uh, have a need, they express uh, that need uh, through their keywords. It's a, a really targeted way for advertisers to reach people at kind of the point where they're in the decision-making process. And it has huge economic value. Some Google keywords are like literally hundreds of dollars every time somebody clicks on the ad. It's crazy. And so if we can kind of, you know, harness that value through what we have built, which is is called a, a keyword staking platform. So in this case, you stake your tokens against a given keyword. There's currently no consumptive charge. There's no cost per click. Uh, but, you know, that is going to come in the future. But but to start, it's about kind of front loading that demand for the token, creating demand within that ecosystem. And so you choose a, a keyword. If you want to stake New World Order, you can go in. You'll see who has the highest stake. You outbid them. And then as long as you have the, the highest bid, then your ad is displayed. And it's kind of the top result in the searches. It's marked with a little ad thing. Uh, but uh, that's how we close the, the demand loop. And we've currently got uh, in total between that and the nodes, which you, you need to uh, stake tokens as well to run a node and earn rewards. Uh, so it is kind of a, a you know dual uh, system. Um, but there's a, about out of the 500 million tokens, there's about 180 million tokens that are staked in that environment already. So it's it's it is working, uh, and uh, we see so many different possibilities to again just kind of like take that economic value and, and keep it within this parallel kind of ecosystem, which is is then, you know, ultimately, hopefully going to push us into a, a freer, less totalitarian uh, direction. Well, all right. I appreciate all of that information. I think this is valuable information for people to use to at least explore pre-search uh, as a search engine, let alone as a token ecosystem, and see if it is right for them. I can say that I've only very recently, to my shame, I've only very recently started using it as my default search. And there are definitely times where I have been searched for specific things and had to to go to other sites because it wasn't there, but I can see that it's definitely a project that is coming along, and what you have said today is, as I say in many points, in accord with my basic philosophy and vision, so if you keep working in that direction, I'm sure I will keep using pre-search in my own search, and uh, we'll also be exploring other search engine alternatives uh, here on Solutions Watch, but I appreciate your time and information. Direct people to the main sources of information where they can go to learn more about pre-search. Yeah, awesome. Appreciate that, James. Uh, Presearch.org, if you want to try it, presearch.io, uh, as you already mentioned. Uh, we're fairly active on uh, Twitter, uh, Twitter slash presearch news, uh, Telegram as well, t.me slash presearch. And then my personal favorite, which is float, which is f-l-o-t-e dot app slash presearch. You can check that out as well. All right. And as I've mentioned, I uh, have been following your uh, news, uh, weekly news updates on Odyssey, on your Odyssey channel. So there's a lot of different ways to stay connected. Uh, Colin Pape, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for introducing us to what you're doing. Awesome. Thanks so much, James. Appreciate it.